0: Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm Thoughtful Money founder and your host, Adam Taggart, and I'm very excited to be welcoming you back here at the end of the week for another, for me, but the first ever for this channel, Weekly Market Recap, featuring my great and steadfast friend, Lance Roberts, Portfolio Manager from Real Investment Advice. Lance, how you doing, buddy?
1: Doing great. Glad to be back after a three-week hiatus. It's nice.
0: It's been a while, and you know, it uh, It felt like a long time, <laughs> and not a happened. lot has happened. A lot has happened in that time, um, but I got to say, this is always the favorite part of my week, and not being able to do it over the past uh, couple of weeks uh, really just felt like this itch I had that I just couldn't scratch, and what made it worse was... <laughs> It's that I think a lot of people wanted scratch because I don't think five minutes ever went by in that three-week period where I wasn't getting hammered with emails from people saying, Where's Lance? When are you and Lance gonna pick this back up? Are you and Lance gonna pick? Has Lance killed you? You know, what happened?
1: <laughs> no, it's interesting. I got just tons of emails and and uh, you know Twitter comments saying the same thing It's like, Hey, are you gonna go back? You know, I, I watch you every Saturday you know, with Adam, it's my whole week, you know, I wait for that. You know, one thing I was like, man, if you're just watching me once a week, you're missing all the good stuff. We do a daily radio podcast, uh, daily blogs, newsletters, all on our website. So it's, 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 it was like, I had no idea there was all these tools out there for me to use. So it actually kind of worked out well because we got to introduce people to, to a whole new suite of products as well. So it
0: worked out. Good, good. good. And make that plug, Lance, make that, it yeah. is well-deserved, well-earned. Um, And I totally encourage everybody who has been watching us uh, week after week uh, to go check out your YouTube channel itself for all that intra week data they can get their total lance fix if they're not getting enough of it with with just this weekly market recap
1: <laughs> which is so, which is probably too much so
0: there you go there <laughs> <laughs> can never get too much lance um look folks um lots to to catch up with here on with lance we're going to jump into the market stuff in just a second um in addition to, hey, when are you and Lance going to start up uh, these weekly recaps again, um, I've been hit with a lot of questions about the birth of thoughtful money, the transition from uh, wealthy on, what's going on, what do you have in store for us? So I've taken a number of the most common questions we've received, and I've emailed them to Lance, and he's going to ask me them in this conversation. We're going to do that in the back half, uh, but just want to let you know that it's coming. Um, all right, Lance. Well, look. Uh, let's let's dive right into the market okay. data. And I guess since it's been a while, um, let me give you a chance to take a victory lap of sorts uh, on two two fronts: the stocks and bonds. Um, so last time we were having this conversation, uh, the market had been grinding down. Uh, it was in the low, you know, around forty one hundred or so. And um, you know, there's a lot of people coming out and saying, okay, this is it. This is this is the big break. It's going to roll over from here. And you were pointing to a lot of data, both technical and historical, that suggested that it was probably more likely that stocks were going to rally into the end of the year here. And I know as generally tends to happen is when a trend starts getting going, more and more people were kind of just piling on you saying, Lance, you've got no idea what you're talking about. You're being too Pollyannish here. Uh, and lo and behold, now that we're talking here in this week, uh, the market's back up to 4,500. Uh, we'll talk about where it's going from here, but but why don't I take a pause here on the stock side of things and just let you, you know, sure. react to this. You're well, not going to say, I told you so, but you're going to say, hey, folks, this is what I was thinking.
1: Well, no, I, I, I want to do it a little differently. Let's just go back and talk because I actually, you know, while we while you and I were not visiting, I've actually been talking a lot on. You know, my daily podcast, as well, I've been writing some blogs about this as well, talking about narratives. And you know, so let's go back to October real quick. And I know, it's, I know, we got we got to get in the way back time machine here to go all the way to last month. You know, it, it's it's crazy though. It seems like when this stuff was going on, it was months ago. It, it not three weeks ago, but the, but three weeks ago, what were we talking about? We were talking about debts and deficits that that was going to lead to this massive surge in interest rates interest rates in the 10-year treasury at that point were nearing 5%. The Fed was saying, "Hey, we're, you know, we're aggressively fighting inflation. We are, you know, focused on this inflation fight and the belief was higher for longer." Um we were talking about energy prices going to $150 a barrel uh in in the month of October. We were because because of the Israel um uh, Hamas fight right so uh, they were talking about the stock market stock markets is grinding lower because of all kind of pressure on the overall market and as you said rightly you know the kind of bears coming out and you know don't give kudos just to me Sven Heinrich who you were also interviewing at the time was saying very much the same thing technically the markets are so deeply oversold and so negative that you're going to get a bounce out of the markets and, you know, and that, and that's kind of where we are. So now let's fast forward three weeks. Now, this has all happened, mind you, in three weeks. Oil prices have collapsed. We're below $80 a barrel. That's sparking fears of a recessionary type of economic environment, economic slowdown. So that's pushing yields lower. At the same time, the Fed has pretty much come out and, without saying it, has said, we're done hiking rates. Mm-hmm. Tim Rose recently saying the same thing, that, in the December meeting that's coming up for the FOMC, I believe that's around the 15th of the month, don't quote me on the date, but the next FOMC meeting, the challenge for the Fed is going to be how to recraft their meet, their meeting message into this, we're done for now type scenario. So, you know, that's that's changed. So that now yields have dropped to around four and a half percent on the 10-year treasury. Uh, Stock prices subsequently have rallied sharply on better than, and again, here's the reasons we laid out for the rally at the end of October, was deeply negative sentiment, uh, deeply offside positioning by professional managers, um, CTAs, who are these computerized trading trading algorithms that were heavily shorting the market in October, we said, hey, that was going to have to reverse, and then, of course, stock buybacks, where that window was going to open uh, at the beginning of November. So those have come roaring back into the market. CTAs have had to cover. And so we've had this very accelerated, very sharp bounce in the markets over the last three weeks. So it, again, so now this narrative has all shifted. <laughs> you know, in three weeks, we went from this uber bearish sentiment to now everybody's like, oh, it's 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 all good. Nothing, you know, we're, we're on the slopes higher from here, Goldman Sachs. Next year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have this big growth in earnings. Uh, for the S&P 500, profit margins are going to grow again. Uh, it's going to be this economic soft landing scenario. Everything is perfect. It, it, you know, Again, narratives. Be careful of these narratives because, again, the markets are responding to a very short-term set of catalysts. And once we get through these catalysts, which will end over the next month or so, we're going to have to come back and revisit the fundamentals, which are going to drive the markets next year. So, you know the the big message from the last couple of weeks is and as we said, so many times you and I have had this conversation. be careful jumping on these narratives and saying this is I'm going to put my whole portfolio into this, you know either the end of the world scenario or the the bulls to the moon scenario because markets don't work that way, and that'll often get you on the wrong side of the trade,
0: yeah. so um I, I do want to talk in a bit about a recent piece you wrote um. Called speculator investor, what's the difference? Where you basically yeah. um you you pick these sort of timeless words of wisdom from many of history's, you know, most famous investors, right? Yeah. Um because I think a lot of you know, the element of what you're talking about there, you dive deeply into that into that article, and, and there's a lot of real diamonds in there. Um, but but in general, Lance, I'm just curious, like, would you say more often than not, maybe even much more often than not, the headlines will will mislead you if you're just reacting to what the headlines are sort of screaming.
1: Yeah, well, that that was kind of the the point of. Uh, so I, I wrote a couple of articles in particular, and and I'll see if I can. What we're talking in a second when you take over, I'll see if I can find this one particular chart. Um, but this is one thing that I've been that I've been real hammering on for the last couple of weeks is about these narrative issues. Is that you've got to be super careful. And, you know, whether it's a YouTube channel or whether it's the you know, CNBC or Market Watch. And, and trust me, I get people emailing me tons of stuff off YouTube and everything They're like, hey, did you see what this guy said? Mm-hmm. So I'll go watch these you know YouTube clips. And, and generally, these are people and you got to be really careful. Right. So, you know, who's the person that's giving you this information? Does he manage money for a living? Does he actually have, you know, skin in the game, so to speak, into, into what he's doing? Um, you know, CNBC, MarketWatch, great. You know, they're a great resource of information, but these people don't manage money. They're not in there. They they're just they just write whatever it is. And here's the important thing about the media. And look, I've been doing radio for 23 years now. And the one thing that you learn doing media is the simple term. And it doesn't matter whether it's television, radio, YouTube, whatever it is. If it bleeds, it leads, right? So the more dire it is, the more clicks and views you're going to get. And so this is why if you ever turn on the, the evening news, you know, and it's, it's not, Hey, look at little Jimmy. He won, you know, he did this really great thing. You know, he took his whole baseball team and they went and raised money to, to help elderly people. Isn't it a great story? That's not the first thing that's up. It's who died, who was in a car wreck, who shot, who, who got robbed, you know, because that's the stuff that gets you into watching Then later on down the show. They'll tell you about little Jimmy and his heroic act that he did. Right. Um, this, but but this is what gets us, you know, off base. We see these headlines. We assume that this is this is what's going on, and it's pervasive. It's everywhere, and and naturally, as humans, we have a, a fight and flee type, you know, uh, systemic response in our system. So when we see bad headlines of you know the economy, the markets, whatever it is our immediate you know, systemic response is to flee, right? I got to sell everything, get out of the market and do this, whatever it is. Conversely, when the markets are rallying like it is now, it's all good news. And so now I can't wait to get back in. And this is why people consistently sell low and buy high over time. You know, that's how it works out. But that's why would be so careful of these narratives. It's, it's what gets you to view it, but then you've got to step back. I'll give you a really good one here as an example. Just read a Wall Street Journal article this morning. China selling treasuries at a record pace. And when you look at the data, it says, wow, the, the, the value of the bonds they held over the last two years have, has shrunk by about 40%. So they, are, they have sold a tremendous amount of their bonds. It is absolutely a false narrative and is absolutely wrong information. Let me explain to you why. If treasury owns one, let's just, we're going to use a real simple example. China owns $1 trillion worth of treasuries. Now, over the next two years, right, they don't buy or sell anything. So now we're going back two years. So January 2022, they own $1 trillion worth of treasuries. And, and up to this point, they have not bought or sold anything. What have interest rates done over the last two years? They've gone up. What has the value of bonds done last two years? They've gone down by 40%. So when you look at their balance of holdings, they own $600 billion worth of bonds. Did they sell any bonds? No. The value of the bonds they hold fell. And so when you start looking at the data, they're not selling their bonds hand over fist. The value of the corpus the corpus that they own has fallen because of the rise in interest rates. Now, are they selling some treasuries? Yes, there's, there's no doubt about that because why? They have an absolutely destroyed economic <laughs> environment going on right now. They're going into recession. And they're working to balance that peg ratio. We've talked about reserves. They're they're struggling to balance that peg ratio between China and U.S. Why? Because we're buying less stuff from them. So they have less money to keep in reserves because we're transacting less business with them. That's why their economy is is slowing down as much as it is. So you've got to be very careful these narratives. It's not that they're selling bonds because, oh, I just don't want to own U.S. treasuries. That's not the case at all. In fact, if you take a look at who is buying bonds, individual investors are buying bonds as fast as they can hand over fist because they're putting money into 5% money market funds. And what do they buy? Treasury bonds. So, right. you know, keep you got to keep all these narratives with a, you know, and, and it's a great headline, right? You know, China's selling all of our treasuries. One of our big fears. Right. So immediately we start panicking and making decisions. Dig down below the surface, look at the data and understand what's going on. That's the problem with narratives, and that's why you've got to really dig into this stuff to understand what you're doing. All
0: right, great point. And um, uh, when we get to the bonds part of this discussion, um, I do want to talk briefly about um, this—the the narrative of foreigners selling our bonds, because um, it is happening. And I don't—I didn't prepare this chart for this discussion, um, but I've definitely pulled up charts in past videos, which show kind of the relative buyers of treasuries. Mm-hmm. And foreign buyers, they're material, but they're not like the biggest player by any stretch. Um, oh, yeah. and and the biggest player by a country mile historically has been the Fed who is not in the game right now. And if we think that the Fed may be back in the game at some point, right if it winds down QT and maybe you know some sort of uh, uh, breakage in the system forces them to return to QE, um, that could have a very big impact on the prospects for treasuries. So um, I want to put a pin in that and hopefully we get to that a little bit later on. While we're still staying, sorry, well, go
1: ahead. Just, no, just real quick call you're on this, because I said when you were, when you took over the conversation, I wanted to find a chart real quick. Yep. And, and, this, and this is the whole point about narratives. And and this is, I so I wrote this article talking about narratives and, on our website. And this was, let me share this this one chart and I'll give it right back to you. So this chart is just basically a bell curve of probabilities. And, 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 and Adam, you understand st- uh, standard deviations and how things occur. Now, now this occurs in everything that you do, whether it's a stock, whether it's a bond, whether it's an economic event, whether it's your personal life, you know, and, and as individuals, you know, when let, let's say that, let's take a really bad scenario. Right. So um, you get served with a lawsuit. Well, so, and, and it's just a civil lawsuit. It's nothing major, right? Just, you know, maybe you you, you ran a business and something didn't go right. And so you get sued. It happens all the time in business. Well, immediately, the first thing that we do is, oh my God, I'm getting sued. I'm going to go bankrupt if I lose, right? So that's not how most of these things work out though, because in civil suits, 90% of the time, these things wind up in arbitration. You come to some type of mutually agreement settlement. They don't get everything they want. You don't get everything you want it's a nominal event and you go on down with life and get it going on but immediately our first reaction again we talked about the systemic you know issue of our psychology is we immediately go to the worst possible outcome and we focus on that it ruins our life for the next six months because we're involved in this thing and that turns out not to be such a bad deal after all right just you know it's part of doing business and you move on but this applies to everything so you know if we talk about the economy when you see a headline that says oh my god you know this is happening and it's going to destroy the economy, right? We're going to shut down the government. We're going to default on our debt. We're going to have a, you know, uh, you know it's going to be World War III. Now, I'm not saying that those aren't possibilities, right? And, and they certainly are possibilities. But when we put it onto a bell curve of normal event outcomes, those are what we call tails. And those are way out there on the end. And those are very, very small probability events. Even things like a financial crisis or a depression—they're certainly much more possible than complete economic meltdown—but they're still pretty far out there. I mean, there was a hundred years between the depression and the financial crisis, so you know those things do happen, and we have to give them some credibility. But they're very far out there on the range of possibilities. And this is what we always talk about when managing your own money: focus on the possibilities. I'm sorry, on the probabilities not the possibilities and so if you're banking on these really really you know outlier events like just demonstrably strong economic growth that's that probably isn't going to happen in the economy or a financial crisis that's probably not going to happen in the current environment so where are we the the 95 percent of the probability of what's going to happen over the next few years is going to be anything from a hard landing to normal economic growth somewhere in between that most likely it's going to be a normal recession to a soft landing or no recession type scenario that's going to be about 70 percent of your probability you know another 25 percent on both sides is the more dire outcomes and then you get really far out there on the extremes and and so this is the whole thing that we're talking about with these narratives just you know it's not saying that these narratives can't happen but we have to put them in the context of what the possibilities and probabilities actually are.
0: This is a great point uh, great point and a great chart for it, Lance. So um, when we talk about these very unlikely events, these low probability events, we tend to call them tail risks. Right. And the reason we call them tail risks is because they're out there on those extreme ends, which are the tails of this bell curve, right? That's so right. You, you know, this does a very good job of saying, yeah, you know, if you're gonna worry about financial crisis, that's okay. But it's got about a 2% chance of happening, right? So you shouldn't be putting 100% of your focus on that because, as you're saying, the probabilities are much more likely to occur within the heart of the bell. And you and I have been in this business long enough, Lance, to have seen a lot of people, very understandably, see data, see developments, and say, oh, my gosh, this is it. I'm 100% sure that economic Armageddon is around the corner and they sell all their worldly possessions, and they build the bunker or, or whatever. Or, or sometimes it happens on the other end. They go all into Tesla calls, right, or whatever, or, 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 or GameStop calls, right? right. Um, and uh, and they get crushed, and it's because they they managed risk poorly. And, and to be honest, we need to start from the point of we're human animals. The behavioral economists have proven that evolutionarily our brains are not good at um, – sort of long-term risk assessment. You know, We're very good at the fight or flight, right? Is, is there a snarling bear in front of us? Okay, great. We can make the right decision pretty quickly in that scenario. But if we're talking about what something complex like the economy and the financial markets might do over the next couple of quarters, it's just not a, a risk that we're very well wired for, at least not to make a snap decision on. That's where we need to build out our spreadsheets and really rely on data, right? So yeah, very useful. And, and I'll give you another example of this too. So I'll try to find this and bring it on a future, um, future one of these these videos. Um, there was a great graphic I saw, sort of a, a, like, a, like a little mini video clip. And it, it visualized your risk as the average American of dying, of basically like, you know, all the different ways you could die. Right. Right. And the one that I spend the most time focus on in my, my real life is the lowest probability ever, which is shark attack. But that's just my personal phobia. right? <laughs> you know, like I think about getting eaten by a shark way more than I should and certainly way more than the probability of it happening. Right. But then if you look at, at kind of what the media is telling us to worry about, you know, these are things like terrorist risks and, you know, gun crime, all sorts of other things that get us divided. They're actually very low probability. Right. And if we really just said, hey, look, you know, what we really care about is preserving you know, human life. And if that's the metric we're going to look at, well, Jesus, well, then we should just be focused on basically preventing heart disease and stopping traffic accidents, right? Because okay. those are the things that kill the vast majority of people, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, we, but we don't because these other things are very emotionally triggering and stirring up for us, right? So we spend a ton of time focused on this stuff and spending gazillions of dollars taking our you know, shoes off at TSA and all that stuff. And I'm, I, I'm not saying that security doesn't play an important role. But I think we we totally overinvest our um our capital, both like our time and focus capital, our human capital and our, our financial capital in a lot of things that if the goal is to protect the maximum amount of human lives, they're really pretty misdirected. So, anyways, I'm really glad you you brought this point up. Um, all right, well, look, just to kind of round out the equity part of the conversation, um, so you you were right. In addition to you saying, hey, folks, you know, definitely reserve some some part of your your probability assessment that markets might rebound here, you know, into the end of the year. Um, we had folks like, um, well, Sven had definitely been saying it. When we had him on. Um, uh, Darius Dale had been saying it when we had him on. Um, and I want to go back to his comments in a second. Tommy Thornton said the same thing. Tom McCullough, another uh, T.A. guy said the same thing. Um, you know, in Darius's conversation that I had with him, he brought up a, a bunch of historical um, precedents and said, "You know, what tends to happen is, is as we stocks tend to sort of do well right into recession, right? Um, and the analogy that that we came up with in the conversation was like the party gets most wild right before the cops show up, right?" Um, and I'm not necessarily saying it's exactly going to happen this time, but but sort of two related questions for you. One is, um, you know, uh, ha- how how much more does this current rally have room to run, right? From your, your earlier comments, it almost sounds like you might be swinging from, hey, we were pretty oversold to, oh, gosh, maybe this thing's moved so far so fast. Maybe we need to start having a little bit of caution here. But uh, we're going to get into the recession risk discussion in a little bit. Um, but how concerned are you at this point in time that this is potentially sort of like a like a, a last and maybe false, um, you know, euphoria going on in stocks before something might happen next year?
1: Well, I, again, that's too far out. Um, you can't predict anything in the markets more than a couple of weeks at best. Um, what we know right now going into the end of the year is that, look, stocks have rallied very sharply. And so this week we did tax loss selling. So we had some some stocks that we like a lot, um, but have just not performed well. So we use this rally to uh, do our tax loss selling for the year. Um, we've been repositioning the portfolio, raising a little bit of cash on this rally. And what we've been saying over the last three weeks is, hey, this rally is going to come. And when it comes, use the rally to rebalance your portfolio risk. So things that aren't working, you get rid of those. Uh, things that are working, you can add to some of those. But you know, when we start getting fairly stressed here, take a little bit of profits, raise some cash, and, and so back in October, if you were just completely terrified about the markets, like oh my God, you know this is all ending, you had too much risk in your portfolio, right? So now, you know, the problem is is that you know, at the market lows, everybody wants to sell anything. And now that market's rallying, now nobody wants to sell anything because they're worried about the markets keeping going up. So use this rally. Uh, We are overbought now short term. Here, let me just go in and share, share, share our charts.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. I was going to ask you to do that. Let's look yeah. at the latest technicals and see where we are on those key bands.
1: Yeah, so... um so we've had this very very nice rally here um you know we we broke through all these moving averages the 200 the 20 the 50. Uh, we broke above this downtrend channel that was very much intact uh going back to the june uh uh, july highs and you know and and we've turned that macd sell signal back into a very strong buy signal but you know uh the relative strength index is now approaching pretty overbought levels so Um, this is a good time right now to go ahead and take some profits out of your portfolio and saying, okay, look, I've had a great recovery here. Let's step back for a moment and let's just kind of remeasure our portfolio. And then on a pullback, then I can buy some more stuff because things have really gotten ahead of themselves. Microsoft's very overbought. Apple's very overbought. NVIDIA is very overbought here. So those stocks will give you a pullback. And when they do, then you can add those in or add to, if you own those positions, add to them or on a pullback, you can add them to your portfolio. And so the question is, is why would we get a pullback? Well, first of all, markets are very overbought. So just systemically speaking, we had CTAs that were grossly underweight exposure. They were heavily short the market. And so they had to cover. And we've had the most buying in the market, like on record. It's just been a massive flood of money that's come into the market over the last three weeks. So if you think about the way the markets work, it's a market, right? So you have buyers and you have sellers. And so if you have a lot of people willing to sell and you have just a very small number of buyers, prices are gonna go down because everybody's trying to get out and there's nobody there to buy them. When everybody wants to buy stuff then sellers are going, okay, I'll sell to you, but you have to buy at a higher price. And so that's what drives prices up. Well, you eventually kind of run out of sellers. Because as the markets are getting more ebulent, people are now going, hey, I don't want to sell here because I'm thinking prices are going to keep going up. So this is going to start to cause the markets to pause as we start kind of running out of buyers. Buyers have bought what they wanted to buy. And, and now we're going to have, start having more sellers coming into the markets and there's not going to be as many buyers. This is why over the last couple of days, markets have really kind of started to struggle here a bit. Um, not really going up, not really going down, but there's kind of an even match right now of buyers and sellers. So prices aren't really moving very much. Um, This could go on for another week or so. And if the markets just consolidate sideways, this overbought condition will get reduced. If the markets decline, which I kind of suspect they will, I'm gonna tell you why I think they're gonna decline here um, in the next couple of weeks is that we get a bit of a sell-off, maybe back towards this kind of 50-day moving average, this downtrend line, you know, somewhere back in here, just kind of just close this gap a little bit. Um, then that's going to give you a really good opportunity to step in, buy some stuff that, where the market's oversold, buy some stuff at cheaper prices. So if you want to buy, you know, whatever, you'll get that a little bit better price. And then you're going to get the year-end rally, which is going to be the Santa Claus rally between Christmas and the first five days of January. So that's going to uh, you know provide you a lift that's where you have portfolio rebalancing and managers putting money to work for the new year etc now why would those stock why why do i think that stock prices will decline well the reason is is that come the once we get through next week so next week inmates run the asylum nobody's around next week because it's holidays so markets probably will be up a little bit next week no big deal coming back from thanksgiving and once we get and so we're going to start getting retail sales numbers Were those good or bad and probably aren't going to be great. So that may put some pressure on say um, discretionary stocks, maybe staples, et cetera. But once we get in the first two weeks of December, about 25% of all mutual funds have to distribute their capital gains, interest, and dividends for the year. So they've got to sell to make those distributions. And so once those distributions go out, they're going to have, to have have They're going to have, have made those sales. Now they have to get their books back in order. And this is why you get this kind of buying at the year end where they start rebalancing their portfolios for that year end reporting, where they better have Apple, Microsoft, Google, NVIDIA, AMD. Those stocks better be on their books because those have been the big winners and if they don't have them. They're going to lose clients. So it's, it's about uh, what they call career risk at the end of the day.
0: So yeah, which my, is so crazy to interrupt, but this Santa Claus rally, right? Which yeah. which is a real thing. It happens Almost most year. years. Yeah. And you're explaining in many in, you know the, the majority of why it has to happen to a certain extent. Um, it's all for optics.
1: Correct. Yeah, you, you, mean, you technically you that money's
0: that money's got to go somewhere, but but it yeah. goes into those the years high performers simply for optics. Yeah.
1: That, that's correct. Because if, I may not have owned NVIDIA all year long, but I'm going to own it in the last three days of the month or the three days of the year. So it goes out on that statement. Um, Yeah, but that's that's just the way Wall Street works, because, again, at the end of the day, when people get their perspectives and they look at it and go, well, my fund didn't own, you know, Eli Lilly or whatever it was, you know, then I'm going to get a different fund because I'm actually writing an article about this on Tuesday is this. um, You know, when you take a look at the performance this year, it's not been great the s&p has done well the s and up roughly about 17% for the year strip out those top seven stocks and nobody owns just seven stocks in their portfolio the performance of the market is near flat it's up you know the equal weighted index is up about 3 uh, 2% for the year um small cap and mid caps are negative for the year i mean outside of seven stocks this market has done nothing this year but People are going to look at their portfolio. They're going to get their advisor statements, whatever it is. And like, well, I didn't make any money last year and the market's up 17. You suck. I'm going to go find a different advisor. Well, the problem is, is that this is every portfolio manager. It's every advisor, because unless they own seven stocks or took a, a tremendous amount of risk, their performance is not great this year. If you owned a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds, your performance is not great this year because of what happened with bonds. So you got it. So the point of this article on Tuesday is looking at these performance differentials and understanding why performance comparison is the worst thing you can do to your portfolio and and to your to yourself in terms of investing, because you're going to look at an index that is driven by seven stocks and compare that to your portfolio, and you're going to start making rash decisions about your management. They're going to be very poor outcomes next year.
0: All right. So let me let me dig into that a little bit because I sure. totally get what you're saying, but people need to compare their performance to something. So how would you recommend somebody, if they're not doing that, how would you recommend they measure their progress on their way to a goal over time?
1: Well, so let me ask you a question. So let's let's put this in real life terms, right? So the media wants you, well, I shouldn't, uh, the media and Wall Street, they want you to compare to the S&P index because performance chasing creates fees. If you didn't beat the S&P last year, well, then you need to move your money somewhere else. Well, that creates fees for Wall Street, right? So as soon as you move your money somewhere else in performance chase, that's going to create fees. But let's talk about what's important to Adam. So Adam wants to retire someday, I'm presuming, right? And so if you said, well, Lance, I want a million dollars to retire on and I've got X dollars today. And so we can run some really simple math and we say, well, we need to grow your money at 4% a year to get you to your goal. So What's more important to you? Is it growing your money at 4% a year or chasing the S&P 500 index?
0: Yeah, no, got it. So what you're saying basically is is, is have a plan and measure yourself on milestones to the plan versus what the external world is doing.
1: Right, because here's the problem with chasing the index. Your portfolio has nothing to do with the S&P 500 index. The S&P 500 index has no cash. It has no fees, it pays no taxes. It pays no, it, it has no other withdrawal expenses on it. So there's, you know, there's not people taking money out of the S&P index. Um, it, it can do what they call substitution. So um, you know, back, back in 2008, GM goes bankrupt. So you own GM and the index owns GM, right? So you sell, so the index says, well, we're getting rid of GM. We're kicking them out of our portfolio. We're gonna put in IBM. I'm just picking a stock. I don't remember what they place GM with, but they stick in IBM that's a hundred dollars a stock, a, a share. So immediately the index recalibrates itself to this new, this new holding of IBM at $100 a share and the index doesn't blip. You have to sell GM that you paid $50 for at zero because it goes bankrupt. And now you've got to come up with some money somewhere else, or you've got to take cash out of your portfolio from somewhere else to buy, that, to buy those shares of IBM. So the difference between your portfolio and the way an index works are entirely different. An index has no time horizon. You do. So when you're measuring your performance, the only thing, you should look at three things when you measure your portfolio. One, what's my performance relative to what my goal is and how much risk am I taking to reach that goal? And secondly, or thirdly, rather, is look at that over a period of time. Not jan- The worst thing things you can do to your portfolio, measure your portfolio from January to December. It's a terrible way to measure performance. And I've said this on, you and I had this conversation before, you should look at your portfolio over a three or four year period and say, how have I done over the last three or four years? Am I on track to reach my goals? You're going to have a bad year. Everybody's going to have a bad year, one year or the next. And the thing that we do that most often leads us to make the worst mistakes with our money is going, well, I missed energy last year. So I'm going to go put all my portfolio in energy because last year energy was up 60%. This year, energy has sucked as an investment. It's one of the worst-performing sectors of the market. So you jumped out of you 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 watched what was doing well last year. So you you jumped into energy this year and and didn't own the technology stocks, which sucked last year. And nobody wanted technology. In fact, you know, in October, I, you and I had the conversation about my article talking about are faint stocks dead? And I wrote the article it says no, they're not. They're going to come back with you know with a vengeance. They've been the best performing. So this is the problem with chasing performance. What is the best performer this year is very often the worst performer next year. So look at your portfolio and say, okay, what didn't work for me this year? What do I need to change? How I've been doing over the last three years, am I okay? And if you are, don't change anything. Just understand that market cycle and things change and, and stay, stay to your discipline because your discipline and your strategy is what's gonna work over time not these emotional buys and sell decisions or moving your money from one manager to another. That's what makes you have the worst returns over time.
0: Yeah, I so I think it's such an important discussion. I'm glad you brought up the point about performance chasing because again, because this goes to behavioral economics but because we're human animals, right? We're, you know, we see somebody outperform the index and we say, oh, I want that guy on my team, right? I wanna I want work yeah. with that manager or that fund or, or that, that sector. And what that more than often puts you at risk to is reversion of the mean, right? You're seeing the guy who had the outperforming year, right? And so statistically, he's likely not going to perform that as well the next year, right? Right. Uh, And so, you know, people, as you said, tend to to jump after the shiny outperformer and they're kind of, you know, almost guaranteeing themselves that they're going to underperform. So anyways, I'm glad you went through this and Lance, I assume that it's that that measuring to to your personal goal is what you do with your clients there at real yeah. investment advice. And the reason why I'm I'm kind of letting us run long on this is because you know, a big part of having you and the New Harbor guys who will also be returning to this channel on this channel regularly is so people can can see what a good responsible financial uh, advisor does for their clients. And whether folks you end up working with Lance's firm or the New Harbor firm or somebody totally different. I'm agnostic to it. I just want you to work with somebody who's good. And Lance is modeling for you what, you know, from a thoughtful money standpoint is a quality responsible financial advisor does for clients. So how how do you do it? Is is it, is it a year end process, but you pull up the, the, uh-huh. the do, do, yeah. do, do you start somebody with goal setting and then you, you track yeah. that over the coming years? How do you do it?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, everything that we do with our clients starts with a financial plan and, and, and it's a very in-depth, very detailed financial plan we account for valuations and variable rates of return and all this all these different variables inflation economic outcomes etc and we factor all those into what could potentially happen to your money over a very long duration period of time and say okay if if these all these things happen and we can we can create what we call a hurdle rate of you know three percent four percent five percent whatever the number is then we know that with certainty that we can get you to your goal. And so then we start modeling the portfolios around what that return rate needs to be. And if your return rate is too high, then we have to start making other decisions about your financial situation. You're spending too much money. You're not saving enough, whatever it is, because it's requiring too big of a return uh, on your money. So and again, so you if you run your financial plan uh, or somebody tells you, oh, just invest your money, you're gonna make 8% a year. That's not realistic. Markets don't do that. Markets don't generate 8% rates of return every single year. Um, And and that having too high of an expected rate of return requires you to take on way too much risk in your portfolio. So when you have these big downturns in the markets, it can absolutely devastate you. You A good example that people tend to forget is that if you were 45 years of age and you wanted to retire at 65 in the year 2000, you spent 17 years making no money because you were investing in a market that was overvalued and had a lot of other issues with it. But for the next 17 years, you made no money towards your retirement. And finally in year 17, here you are, you're facing your retirement and you're very far away, from, you're 17 years away from your goal. So a lot of people had to shelve their retirement plans because they planned for these very high rates of annualized rates of return that just didn't materialize. Because of the rally that we've had in the markets over the last 13 years, we're very likely going to move into a period of very low returns going forward. So, if you're modeling out six, seven, eight percent annualized rates of return, that's fine. Understand you're going to to take a whole lot of risk to get there. And if you're wrong, it's going to devastate your retirement. But if your return rate is three or four percent, you're probably going to be able to achieve that. So, having realistic expectations about how markets work and what you can generate. Is is most valuable to you reaching your ultimate retirement goal?
0: All right. So, talking about three or four percent defendable returns, it's a great segue into the next part of the conversation, which is bonds. uh, Which right now, you know, safest bonds out there are returning, you know, five percent or four and (laughs) a half percent right now. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. Um, Real quick, before we trundle off the bonds, is there anything else about this chart that we've had up here that you want to talk to?
1: No, 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 that's it. And again, it's, it's just. You know, the way I try to end this article when I'm talking about, um, you know, expectations and performance and those type of things, I use a, I use a simple example and, and, and you know, it's this, I'd say, Adam, I really appreciate all you've done for me this year. I'm going to buy you a Mercedes for Christmas. So you're pretty happy because I bought you a Mercedes until you find out that I bought the other guy that I do work with, I bought him two Mercedes. So now you're not so happy, right? You feel you feel I don't I didn't treat you as well as the other guy, but are you really that bad off because you only got one Mercedes, right? And that's how we have to think about you know our money is that we're always chasing what somebody else had or what somebody else got, and doesn't really matter. We have to learn to be happy with <laughs> what we have and have and and be good enough with the things that we're getting because the mistakes are made. When we start chasing unrealistic expectations.
0: Yeah, I am. Um, oh, by the way, I didn't really buy your Mercedes, so. No, Marcus I know, which is why I feel okay. terrible now. But um, <laughs> you may remember a couple of months ago on on one of these programs, one of our videos here, Lance, um, I shared the uh, the the social science experiment with with the capuchin monkeys um, yeah. to show how how not just humans but all animals are wired for perceived injustice and and basically for the folks that didn't see that the researcher feeds these two monkeys cucumbers and monkeys like cucumbers they're totally happy to have them and the monkey you know they they have to like put a little rock in a dish and if they do the researcher gives them a, a cucumber as a reward monkeys will do that all day long they're totally happy but then the researcher starts giving one of the monkeys grapes which monkeys really like Uh, and still gives the other one cucumbers and you see the second the other monkey sees his buddy get the grape and then he does the same task and he gets the cucumber he's like what and then he does it one more time and he starts like throwing the cucumber down and banging his little monkey fist and he throws the rock at the researcher he's just so mad right and it's like he's getting something that he likes and would do all day but the fact that his buddy is now getting the grape just turns him ballistic right and that's what humans do and that's how our emotions get us really into trouble okay so moving on to bonds because there's a lot to talk about with bonds and, and we're beginning to run out of time here um this is your second victory lap that i want to hand to you which is you have been i mean it's i don't know, i don't know if you can take the full victory lap yet <laughs> but um, as the us tenure was creeping up and creeping up and getting you know up there near 5% i know the chorus of people saying lance you and your your partner michael lebowitz have been super bullish on bonds and you've been buying tlt and you've said you've been buying even more in your personal account. Um, and man, dude, you're just wrong. Don't you get it? We're in a new paradigm here, new secular shift, higher inflation, higher interest rates here to stay. Um, and you know you every week we would revisit this on this program and you would explain you know, your logic and how why you hadn't really changed your main thesis yet. Game's not over for you yet, but you've gotten a lot of relief. 10 year now down to 4.4%, I think at the moment that we're talking here. Right. Um, so, talk about what you see the bond market doing right now, and of course, a lot of that 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 drop came after um, the latest CPI number that came out in October, and everybody is all of a sudden thinking, okay, well, inflation's you know getting under control, Fed's not going to have to be higher for longer. The pivots may be closer than we thought. Okay, let's start you know bringing rates down in anticipation of that.
1: Yeah. So, a couple of things. First of all, is like uh, you know so. Yeah, I was I was buying a lot more as as rates push 5%. Um, the undervaluation of bonds relative to basically everything else was getting extreme. And so I was buying more. I recently took some of that trade. I told you then it was a trade. And so I recently took some of that trade off the table
0: uh, earlier this week. So, so you booked profits. Congratulations.
1: But some profits on that. I still own my core. Right. So I still have the core long position that I'm not selling. Uh, and won't sell it anytime soon there'll be a point to where when we get in a recession and yields drop toward towards our ultimate target we will sell it then and then we'll start buying you know beating up corporates or whatever we're going to buy but the core is still there so I I did trade I did take advantage of that that kind of a rational fear in the markets and and traded that little piece but um, you know the the Two things have, actually, several three things have happened now that suggest that the Fed is now on hold. First, is the employment report came in a lot weaker than expected. Um, that's probably going to continue again this month. Um, as we're starting to see employment really kind of hitting some some final kind of finally some headwinds. Uh, CPI came in a lot weaker than expected. Year over year comparisons are going to continue to drag uh, inflation lower, particularly as rent, which has dropped sharply, in that homeowners' equivalent rent that's going to that's runs a big lag. that's going to feed in because that's really just now starting to feed into the cpi report so that's going that's over 30 percent of cpi that's that's why it
0: matters because it's such a big chunk of cpi Yeah.
1: yeah i mean everything else could be up and that's going to drag the whole index lower um but oil prices um now and this by the way let me clarify something really quick oil prices have nothing to do with cpi zero energy is what's involved in CPI. So in other words, it's the offshoots of, of oil prices. So it's gasoline, it's heating oil, it's heating costs, utility costs. That's what's actually in CPI. That makes up 7% of CPI. And it also runs with a three month lag, by the way. So um, you know, oil prices have been coming down fairly sharply. That's gonna start applying some, some pressure as well. But if you take a look at the latest CPI report, um, I run a couple of different measures of CPI. So there's, of course, headline, there's core. I run a measure that is X healthcare and rent. And the reason I run healthcare and rent outside of that inflation index is because that's a fixed cost for most of us. My rent, I've been renting so that, you know, we talked about last year, you know, I I sold my house and I'm renting and we're now remodeling a new house, an old house that we're gonna move into. So I've been paying rent for two years. My rent hasn't changed for two years. I've had zero inflation on rent. My healthcare costs have not changed over the last year because they're contractually fixed for a year. Now we're about to get into open renewal and I'm probably going to see an uptick in healthcare costs, right? But now I'm going to get inflation in healthcare. I don't get it every month though. So if you take a look at, you know, the inflation that the average American gets outside of rent and healthcare, it's actually about 2.6%. So it's actually coming down fairly well towards that 2% target that the Fed wants. And Again, kind of across the board, we're starting to see that kind of lower pressure. Remember, we were talking about 9% inflation in June of last year. Uh, you and I were talking about you know, inflation had probably peaked and was going to come lower. So you know, we've been working through that cycle, and that cycle of low inflation is, is definitely coming. So these very high interest rates that we had um, were above and beyond what was actually going on with inflation. If you take a look at the interest rate of bonds versus the inflation expectations, there was about a 1% gap. So that gap has to close inflation and interest rate inflation expectations and interest rates should be fairly close to each other. They track pretty closely. There's a big gap. So that's all trying to just correct itself. We have a lot of psychological you know, impacts on the bond market that are now starting to get backed out. We're not going to go to two percent uh, interest rates in the next month. We're probably going to stall here between four, four and a half percent, something like that. Um, that's about where we should be with inflation, where it is right now and economic growth just kicking off four point nine percent uh in the third quarter fourth quarter is going to be around two percent so if we're between four four and a quarter four and a half that's about right for where we are right now now if the fed starts cutting rates next year we get slower economic growth yields are going to fall further
0: okay got it and i want to get into that part in a moment um because a lot of people that i've interviewed recently certainly all the interviews so far on thoughtful money um people are definitely feeling pretty pessimistic about next year and I, I, I do want to get into that for you but I, I I do find with the people that I'm talking to right now one of the areas where there's probably the greatest disparity of forecasts mm-hmm. is inflation you know you take a guy like David Rosenberg who I just interviewed he says we're going to be at like one percent by the end of next year right That's fine. All right. You talk to other people and they think, yeah, I know we're going to be kind of in a 70s style, you know, inflation's going to be stickier and it's going to keep reigniting. And especially as the administration keeps doing, uh, you know, as much stimulus as it can, um, you know, that's going to keep inflation kind of popping along here. Until quite recently, it was higher oil prices are going to create more inflation. Right. Um and even, the, even though they've come down, we, we don't know what's going to happen, right? They, the oil prices could go back up. We, we don't know. I'm just pointing out that that's one area right now where I see the greatest. Uh, there's a lot of unity of, of where things are headed in many other dimensions with the folks I've been interviewing, but that's one where they really seem to be uh, having lots of differences of opinion. Sounds like you think that disinflation um, is going to continue to be the name of the game through next year. And maybe pretty substantially, if you think 1% by the end of next year is, is likely.
1: Well, I'm just saying that. So, you know, again, the, you have to understand and we've talked about this before is that you can have all these narratives, right? High oil prices or this or that, or the other thing at the end of the day, all that matters is economic growth and, and, and what is happening within the overall economy because economy drives. And so you have high interest rates, that's that impedes economic growth because that strips away. I mean, we're already starting to see consumers, you know, having more trouble you know, with spending, retail sales, et cetera.
0: Dude, remember, you're talking to Mr. Lag effect here. I'm yeah, right exactly. there. With you.
1: Right, right. So so that is still, you know, that that's going to curtail economic growth. So let's let's step back for a moment and talk about inflation. So. In order to have inflation, you have to have supply and demand. You have to have a supply-demand imbalance. You know, you have to have more demand, and you have supply of goods and services to meet that demand. That leads to higher prices. That's inflation, right? So all we're talking about is higher prices. Where do higher prices come from? They come from supply-demand imbalances. So why did we have inflation in 2020, 2021? Because we shut down the economy and had a massive influx of demand because we sent stimulus checks directly to households. And they went and did exactly what you wanted to do, which was spend it.
0: So we wanted to buy stuff and fewer things to buy because of the supply chain breakages. Yep.
1: Exactly. So if if I've only got one widget to sell you, then it's an open market. I'm going to say, Adam, what you want to pay me for my widget? Cause this guy over here just offered me X and the other guy offered me Y. So you better bid Z if you want it. Right. That's inflation. That's, that's all it is. It's nothing magical. It's nothing, you know uh, you know, fantastical. It's just a function of supply and demand. So, okay. So having said that, let's talk about next year. First of all, nobody knows what the hell is going to happen next year. I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody's got an idea. So we're all just guessing. But let's talk about reality of what could happen next year. So so the, the guess that said that if you have more stimulus from the government, you're going to have more inflation. That's a true statement. So if somehow the Biden administration, or whoever gets elected president, you know, next November, whatever it is, is able to pass some type of stimulative spending bill, send checks to households or pass another $2 trillion worth of, you know, some type of, you know, green energy bill or whatever it is, then yeah, you're going to get inflation because you're going to dump a whole bunch of money into the economy. And that's going to create higher prices because there's a demand supply imbalance. Without that, you're not gonna have inflation because higher interest rates, student loan payments, those type of things, that's reducing the demand on the economy. We're already, we just heard from Target and and Walmart. Both companies reported earnings, right? Target was up 20% after after their earnings announcement, not because they had stellar earnings. It was only because the earnings weren't as bad as everybody thought they were gonna be. Their sales still declined over 4%. And they said, look, Traffic slowing down. Our sales are slowing down. We're, we're forecasting a week next quarter. Walmart said exactly the same thing.
0: Yeah, so, and, and sorry, yeah. I actually have it printed out here for Walmart because they dropped 8% last night after earnings. By the way, um, we
1: bought Walmart yesterday.
0: Yeah, in specific, you what? We bought Walmart after the earnings. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, then I want to hear why, because uh, the CFO on the call said, they saw a, they saw a sharp fall off in sales during the last two weeks of October, and management said there's still strain on the consumer, and they are more cautious than they were three months ago. So, yep. you know, they're definitely ringing the bell and saying, "Hey, consumers looking like they're starting to struggle." Um, so, I'm just curious, why not let the knife drop further? Why, why buy Walmart Well, we, we
1: just again, as we've always told you, we always look to buy a starter position. So we okay. Bought so our-
0: this is your nibble in. It's
1: my nibble. Uh, okay. So, but I mean, look, uh, Walmart uh, has got a very strong positive trend going back over a long period of time. It's it's a gr- well-run company. Their earnings report was actually very good, um, outside of their guidance. So there was, the the eight percent drop was unjustified relative to even what a more dire outlook for their earnings might be over the next quarter. So it, it's just undervalued relative to that. So anyway, right.
0: and, and sorry, and and if you expect sort of recession, you want to be on the. Um, the staple side of of, of the trade, or it's the, the staple side of the economy, not the discretionary side.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what stores you have out in, in uh, California, but in, in you know Houston, as an example, we have stores like Randall's, which are where they're they're more kind of a upscale kind of a grocery store, and so things are a bit more pricey, a little bit more expensive to go to, or Whole Foods, right? Very expensive store to shop at. So when things get really tough, I don't want to, I don't want to own a Whole Foods. I want to own a Walmart because 60% of Walmart sales are food. So people are going to be shopping for the cheapest product and that's where they're going to wind up going. So, and so, and that's, that's the other reason we bought Walmart over target is targets uh, only about 20% is their food. So they mostly rely on, you know, retail goods, which again, I can cut back on buying underwear, socks and uh, you know, shirts and pants, but. You know, I've got to buy groceries. So if I if if only twenty percent of my grocery or my sales are groceries, I want Walmart, which is sixty. And we also own Costco because Costco prints money because of that membership fee, and they just yes. increase their membership fee. And so people may not buy as much at Costco, but they're going to keep paying that membership fee. So it's just ATM money going into that company. So uh, that's why we own those on the staple side. Those are the two companies that we own because in a recession they should do the best.
0: Okay, got it. So I guess. Let's let's just grab the recession bull by the horns here for a second. Yeah. Um, I, I recall from way back when, you know, a month ago <laughs> we yeah. last talked. Three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, you were saying, um, "Hey, I think you know, stocks are going to surprise to the upside going into the end of the year." Um, but you said, from a probabilistic standpoint, it wouldn't surprise you to have recession materialize next year. If I remember correctly, I think you were saying the second half of 2024. Um, just to let you know, the folks that I have interviewed on this channel since it launched um, way back a week ago um, <laughs> have kind of universally said they expect to see things really start to break in the first half of this year. Um, just just interviewed Ted Oakley. That interview hasn't aired yet, um, but he thinks it's going to happen in the first half of the year. Interviewed Fred Hickey. Um, he thinks it's going to happen in the first half of the year. This not like January 1st, but you know somewhere okay. between January and, and July. Um, and with Fred, it's interesting because, um, well, he's more, I mean, I, I do think he thinks it's recession driven, but, but he thinks that what's really going to break the markets is going to be uh, a weakness of the generals, of the Magnificent Seven. As you know, Fred is famous for his newsletter, The High Tech Strategist, which he's been publishing since the mid 80s. And he's actually quite bearish on the big tech complex right now, on those magnificent seven stocks. Um, and he thinks that he, he is predicting that next year is the year where they really start breaking hearts. And of course, they've driven, they've pulled the markets up with it. And so he expects they're going to pull the market down with them. Uh, yeah. And then last, Tom McClellan, <laughs> when I interviewed him for for the conference that I did a month ago, you know, he's got all his black magic voodoo TA stuff. And he's actually got like the month. I mean, he's actually got a chart that basically says he's like, "This is when I think it's going to break." But in his words, two thousand twenty-four is the years when the wheels come off. Um, but again, all these guys are a little more front-loaded than you are. I think Darius Dale, when I talked to him too, was pegging it somewhere between February and June. Um, anyways, I just wanted to provide that context. Are you still thinking the second half of the year? Has anything changed since you and I no. talked a month ago?
1: Not really. Again, you know, timing is always the issue, right? Yeah. And so they could they could be right, and, maybe and that's, it's a
0: sucker's game. I mean, you're always putting yourself yeah. at risk when you put a time frame on. But
1: yeah, but but again, you know, the one thing that you know, look, everybody was calling a recession in 2023 and it didn't happen. Oh, sorry, 2022 and it didn't happen. And so now we're into the no recession, soft landing scenario. So and, and right.
0: the read. Hey, hey, sorry to interrupt on that, but I wanted you to incorporate this in your answer. Talking to Rosenberg, he fell into sword. And he said, yeah, I'm wrong. This this recession took longer to materialize than I thought. But he said, it's because that pig that got shoved in the python was so damn big. And he's like, yep. it was so big, we really couldn't fully understand how big it was. Right. And it just was bigger than we thought. And But it but it's finite. And it is eventually now exiting the system.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's my whole point is that, and again, you and I talked about the pig in the python. I wrote an article on it in 2022 saying, hey, you don't realize how much stimulus is in the economy. M2 is a percentage of GDP, blah, blah, blah. It is coming down, but it's not out of the system yet. And that's why, you know, I'm kind of backloading my recession forecast. There's still a lot of money in this system, right? Between the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act, you know, the stimulus checks that are still floating around, benefits, et cetera. There's just so much money that is out there and still in the system. It's keeping things going. It's like, you know, why aren't retail sales just falling off a cliff right now? And they just keep chugging along. We just printed 4.9% GDP growth in the third quarter. How the hell did that happen? That's because of all that money. And that's just going to take time. So, you know, if you take a look at the economic data, it is slowing, but it's not dropping off a cliff. Take a look at the recent ISM reports, they're ticking up here a little bit. You and you and I had this conversation back in October. I wrote an article about, hey, you know, be careful. These things don't go straight downhill, right? You're going to get these bounces in this economic data. And we're seeing that, right? We're getting these bounces. And so that's going to give the economy some relief here. Then they're going to roll over again. Then they're going to bounce. And there's enough money that we could do this for another couple of quarters before we get some real recessionary growth. Uh, or, or it's kind of real recessionary indications. And it's not going to be a deep recession. We're, we're not talking about, you know, 10% unemployment. We're not talking about, you know, uh, you know, economic growth, you know, negative 6%. This is going to be maybe a negative 1% GDP type situation. It's going to be maybe a 5% unemployment rate. And the reason is, is that we laid off half of the economy in 2020. And we've only hired them back. Take a look at the employment to population ratio. It's lower than it was at the peak of the market in 2019. We just never hired all these people back. And we have population growth during that period of time. So companies are going to, you know, lay, and, and you and, and you and I were talking about you would like every time I would come on, you know, last year and early this year, you give me the latest layoff. Announcements. Yes. And all those layoffs have been done. And for most companies, they hired the people they wanted to hire back and they didn't really overhire. We haven't been through a long period of growth where companies overhired for jobs and we haven't had a bunch of excess hiring. So we're probably not going to see this big, massive drop off in employment. It's going to, we'll have some unemployment increase, but it's not going to be this massive wave where we right.
0: just. So, so let me, so I, I I don't disagree with your stats, but let yeah. me, let me just ask you this because it's sticking in my mind, which is, you know, Pal, all he's talked about for two years basically is we just have way more job openings than we have yeah. people to fill them. That's great. Um, so really true. If, we, if, right. if, we, if we didn't over hire, yeah, I know there's a lot of double counting and stuff that goes on in there, but if we didn't over hire, um then why aren't there all these people around saying look dude i need a job i want a job right it's it's still i mean the quit rate ratio has come down it's it's becoming a tighter job market but it does not at all from from at least my view seem to be a market where people are having a tough time finding employment
1: right no it's not i mean if you want a job there's probably a job out there for you but we are starting to see if you pay attention to initial uh continuing claims that's been rising for months now. Yeah. So the people that are out of the still, job still
0: from low levels, but yeah, I think this is finally beginning to get people's yeah. attention. Like, oh, this looks like the trend is reversed. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, but again, if you just take a look at the employment to population, again, you know, the job openings numbers, you got to really take those with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. We, uh, and we've we've yeah. spilled a ton yeah. of ink on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just you know, I, I have I have a job open. I always have a job opening at my company. Right. We don't hire anybody for it, but there's always a job opening and if, if we have to find. The unicorn of, a, of an employee, I'll hire you, right? If you happen to be that unicorn, there's a job waiting on you. But I mean, the the the, the stack deck for those credentials better be there, right? I mean, it's got to be, you know, it's, it's so there's a lot of jobs like that. There's a lot of jobs that are sitting out there that we'll hire for, but basically they're not getting filled. And that's why you have these job openings that are sitting out there. So kind of just throw that out the window. It doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but the employment to population ratio, you take a look at, at those numbers, take a look at your uh you take a look at your labor force participation rates, those things tell you that we haven't really, and, and again, because you're considering the number of people that are coming in through immigration, birth, naturalization, et cetera, that are coming into the workforce. There's a lot of people sitting out there that don't have jobs.
0: Um yes. Uh and, and we don't count them, by the way. No, I know. Well, I mean, so we've talked about this forever and and, and we got to move on because we're running short on time. But but yes, first off, there is the not in the workforce population that the government just doesn't count. That's over 100 million people, <laughs> 100 million working age adults. Right. I mean, it's crazy. Right. Um, but my, my general point was just sort of um, you and I have certainly lived through periods of time where, you know, there's there's millions of people who want jobs and can't get them. Right. Yep. That's not. Certainly, what we've had for the past bunch of years, and it still doesn't seem to be that case now. Um, so when you're talking about the type of recession that you see coming, um it sounds like you're you're right now calling for a mildish one. I don't want to I don't want to undersell it.
1: No no I, I, no, it's not mildish. It's it, I would say a normal recession. It's I, I don't you know when Pete, when you talk about recession, most people, they immediately focus on the financial crisis. Right, we're not going to have a financial crisis. We don't have the mortgage issue that we had back. We don't have the subprime credit issue, those type of things. It's not going to be that type of recession. This is going to be a more normal recession, a, a dot com you know type recession of the economy. So your your negative one two percent growth. It's not great, by the way. I'm just saying, I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a good thing you know it's still a recession but don't expect you're going to have a you know a 2020 shutdown type recession where gdp falls by 30% that's not going to happen
0: right and 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 i mean i i think we have developed this such a thin skin right i mean we we've we've morphed as a society to try to do everything we can to ever keep a recession from happening right where i think we now equate recession with depression right? exactly People hear recession and they think, oh, my gosh, we're all living under a bridge. And it's like, no, 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 it's just it's a it's a bad patch where for quarters or maybe a year plus, you know, you might have a tough time, you know, making as much or maybe you get laid off and it's hard to find work during that period. But it is not we're going back to barter society.
1: Right. And that's my point is, you know, let's keep, you know, keep keeping things in perspective and, and go back to that bell curve, right? normal recession and, and normal growth are, you know, the 68% probability that you're going to get. And, and I think I would focus on that. Now, if things potentially get worse, that's possible. But again, if things are, if we're in a recession, the Fed's going to be cutting rates, they're going to go back to QE, rates are going to go to zero, uh, the stock market's going to stumble maybe 10 to 15 to 20% because of what we look, we've already been through two years of zero returns for the market. So you know whatever bear markets you're going to get you've already rung out a big chunk of that process over the last two years outside of seven stocks um so you know if you get to another recessionary downturn next year you may have 10 to 15 percent down on stocks because again they've never actually you know for the, the vast majority of stocks they didn't recover this year so again there's not a lot of of you know devastation to come in the financial markets so, again, there's it's not going to be this massive rip the rug out from under you and everything. You're going to lose a ton of money. It's, it's going to be maybe another year of no returns, lots of volatility, difficult to navigate. I don't necessarily agree, disagree with the fame might come under you know, some some rough patch next year. They had a rough patch in 2022. Nobody wanted to own them. They were down 20 yep. percent. Then they didn't get enough of them. So yeah, I mean we could go through another year like that where they underperform and maybe staples, defensive stocks, um, you know, those uh, healthcare, which has been a terrible for, performer this year, maybe healthcare is the place to be next year.
0: Okay. And well, I I don't want to speak for you, but Rosenberg definitely said his, his theme for 2024 is is bonds have more fun. Absolutely. You, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I've been saying, I've been saying for a year that. 2024 bonds are going to grossly outperform stocks period
0: okay all right well look we got to start wrapping it up here by the way i do want to i'm looking forward to talking about fred hickey's uh uh, observations with you in next week's video that's going to come out the day after this video airs um so if you can watch at least part of that over the next week lance it'd be fun to hear your thoughts because
1: i don't do this show to have homework
0: I know you don't. I know I'll send you some clips. So we'll, we'll keep it quick. <laughs> but but the fact again that Fred, you know, is is has made his bread and butter following this industry for what, 40 years or whatever. Uh and he's to a certain extent almost paid to, to have an incentive to be bullish on these stocks. He's basically saying it's not the year to be in them. So it'd be interesting to see. Uh, Ted Oakley as well, you know, said, look, you know, what we haven't seen if 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 a bear market is indeed to, to happen, uh, is a capitulation. Um, We didn't see that in 2022. And he said, you know, Ted's colorful languages. He said, you know, in the capitulation, uh, along with the infantrymen, they shoot the generals too. And, you know, he looks at the Magnificent Seven as the generals. So, um, all right. So uh, just wrapping up the finance part of the discussion here, trades, what trades have you guys made over the past Uh, week and any notable ones over the past month that you made while we weren't talking that folks (laughs) know about
1: No, um, uh, really, it's 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 been pretty quiet um, over the past, you know, uh, couple of weeks. Again, I added the bonds, sold sold some of my uh, trading position in my bonds. That was only uh, trade outside of last week. Last week, basically, just doing some tax loss selling. Uh, There's some like we've we've been long a company called CVS uh, in the healthcare space. Love CVS, great yield. Uh, Stock has great fundamentals to it. It's just had. You know, just a, a tough year with healthcare in general has been a tough year. Uh, so we we sold that for the tax loss. We're going to buy it back at some point. Um, but uh, we've been adding in some other stocks as well. Uh, we bought a, a starter position in Berkshire Hathaway uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's had a nice little pullback. Really?
0: Okay. Uh, I'm glad. to Talk about that for a sec.
1: Yeah, so uh, Berkshire Hathaway is a, a way to kind of closet index the S&P. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's it's actually just, you know, it, it does well. The fundamentals are good. Obviously, it's Warren Buffett. But it has, it just, it holds up well within within the overall market. There's just kind of this natural gravitation uh, to Berkshire Hathaway as a place to hide money. And so you see a lot of professional managers, money managers, et cetera. And this is why one thing we talked about, the mindless robot, right? Passive investing. Yep. Berkshire Hathaway is in those top 10 stocks. So it gets money flows. Um, as money's going into S&P index funds, it automatically gets money flows because it's in those top 10 holdings. Um, so you know, we've had a little bit of a position that we were underweight financials. And so Berkshire Hathaway is in the financial sector because of its insurance holdings. So we needed a finance stock, but we didn't, we're still a little bit worried about the bank stocks in general because mm-hmm. if we start to see interest rates do fall and the Fed does start cutting rates that cuts net interest income for banks. So Again, just kind of a way to play financials. We also own Visa in the financial sector as well uh, because they just generate cash. Every time you swipe your credit card, they generate money. So they're a little bit more recession-proof. So in the financial sector, we just kind of building some holdings in that area. Um, And then we added Walmart on the pullback just because of fundamentals. of the company really didn't warrant that big of a uh, decline. But this earnings season, that's been very much the case that companies that have good earnings, but maybe just guided down a little bit, got completely hammered. So there's been some really good opportunities to add to positions like we added to NVIDIA, we added to AMD. Um, uh, I've done some other stuff like that around the edges of the portfolio just to bring weights up. But we still have a net. uh, We're running about 51% exposure out of 60. So we're still carrying about 9% cash. And what we're looking for is this pullback in the first couple of weeks of December. Then we'll put that 9% back to work for that end of the year rally.
0: Okay all right so you you plan to be positioned at at 100% of your 60% uh for the, the rally if things yeah. go if you get that dip that you're expecting right okay great um it, just curious on berkshire um is is that a nibble position or, or is is that is that a full position now in the portfolio
1: oh no no it's just it's just a nibble and and you know as it we're kind of it's it's had a nice little rally here over the last couple of weeks i'd like to see it pull back a little bit maybe towards support uh, where I can add another, uh, you know, weight to that particular position and bring it up to market weight.
0: Okay. All right. Great. All right, Lance. Well, look, we get to switch chairs here now. Um, yep. If you want to pull up the the emails uh, questions that I sent you, um, yep. folks, as promised, um, I just want to address directly a number mm-hmm. of the, the the most common questions that folks have been sending my way since I announced that I was leaving to go independent and start Thoughtful Money. Um, and I will do my best to answer any other questions that you ask me in the comments section below or via email or on substack or on Twitter um I'm doing my best I'm literally kind of drowning under the volume <laughs> of these comments so I thought I'd hit the the, the highlights here so Lance sure. uh, far away with the first one there
1: yeah no problem so you know, I, there's really there's a couple of questions that actually kind of all go together so probably you can answer these all together but of course you know I've been getting a lot of people a lot of people asking me questions like well, I can understand why Adam left he sold out at the top and you know now he's gonna go do something else so you know take the money and run right I mean that's that's why you left the other company right
0: so that that has been the most hurtful to my heart question N- not because people think that might have been the case. I think it's a natural potential assumption to make uh but just because it's so wrong <laughs> and i i I was limited I still am limited in 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 fully what I can say just by contracts and things like that. But in my farewell video on Wealthion, um, it was a short video. Uh, It was kind of scripted by committee. So there was a lot of other stuff I would have loved to have said, but I just wasn't able to. Um, But um, uh, let me just make it super clear to folks. Um, A a factor in why I went independent was that, uh, as confusing as I know it must sound to people, um i started the i conceived of the company i started it i i ran it ran almost all aspects of it um but i didn't own it i actually didn't own any equity in wealthy on and that kind of has goes back to sort of how it was created uh, the conditions under which it was created and that's a story for a different day and again i'm kind of very limited on what i can say there but i had been part of another company that got absorbed into a bigger company and so the foundation, the plumbing of what became uh, wealthy on was something I had built over the previous 10 years, but I didn't own it anymore, but I had a big vision for it. So anyways, to be able to, to launch the company and, and create my vision, there was an imperfect set of circumstances that as time went on and, and the company actually became quite successful, um, those imperfections just weighed more heavily. And then I decided, you know, the best thing for everybody uh, to be able to run the business as as best I wanted to run it for you, the audience, was to do so as an independent. Um, and so um, I, I I had to let the folks who own the company take it and run it. And so there was no sale. I had nothing to sell. So just to be super clear, Adam didn't get a, a pile of cash for it. In fact, he got no cash for it. He had to spend a lot of cash and found thoughtful money. Um, but, um, you know, don't don't feel bad for me. Um, I have been very blessed in, I believe, finally in my my professional career, finding what I'm supposed to be doing for a living. And that's really what, what On started for me. And now I'm just doing that fully independently where I have 100 percent control and can bring exactly the type of content to you all exactly the way that I want to do it. So oh. did that clear up the question, Lance?
1: Well, yeah, and it, it kind of answered the other question, which was I wanted to ask you the question of, did you learn your lesson about having partners this time around and having investors?
0: Hey, you know, I'm nothing negative uh, about the folks uh, that I worked with there. I want to be really clear, amicable separation. I wish those guys well. I think they wish me well. Um, but it is funny. I uh, somebody commented to me, sort of as I've been going through the transition, um, they said, "Oh, you know, there's this old adage. Um, what's the only ship that doesn't float?" Partnership, you know is the answer. Right. and it's funny, uh, because, look, I think there are lots of examples of successful partnerships, but I can say that in making this transition, I have had so many entrepreneurs uh, contact me and with their horror stories of, of partnerships that didn't end up. And I want to make it really clear. there's not a horror story. Uh, like I said, lots of goodwill towards the the organization. Um, I'm cheering them on. I, I think they're cheering me on. Um, but I'm just super excited to where um, I'm going to be able to take thoughtful money uh, from here, and and super excited with just the initial results. Um, uh, we've had um, so you know so many people find us already, and we've been in soft launch the past week, so we really haven't even been doing any any loud cheering of of the launch of this channel. And uh, and with that said, um, we've got. Really robust views on the videos already, much more robust than I would have expected just a week in. And uh, and just yesterday, Lance, I, uh, I just a couple of days ago, I put um, uh, the wealthy on, uh, sorry, the thoughtful money feed on uh, the major podcast platforms. So folks, if if you prefer to listen to a, a podcast versus on YouTube, uh, we're now available on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Um, but I just found out yesterday that we were number 14 on investing podcasts on Apple podcast. Um, I I'd, I'd never been that high before with the previous company. So, um, it's super nice to see this new channel already off to such a great, uh, a great launch.
1: That's awesome. Um, so well, that, 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 that kind of brings us back to, I guess, you know, the whole name of thoughtful money and, and are you going to do anything different this time than you were doing before?
0: Yeah, I've been getting a lot of questions about that, and I, I think what I the easiest way to answer it is, um, everything that you loved about my work previously, you're going to get. So none of that's going to change. If you really like these deep dive interviews, if you really like the weekly recap with Lance, um, all that great stuff's going to continue from here. Um, but we've got the opportunity to do more. Um, and that's um, delivering uh, new and different types of content. And um, some of that sort of still on the drawing board. So allow me to be a little opaque on it for right now. Um, But basically, you know, there are things like um, uh, more ways to engage as community, more ways to engage, to learn in more depth with courses. Um, Hopefully I'm going to be able to do more type of explainer videos, which is where I sort of, I do a deep dive into something pretty practical that the audience cares about. Um, You know, you might remember in the past, Lance, I did videos about how to buy T-bills or how to buy I-bonds or, you know, explaining, um, you know, banking crisis is going on. Can we do a special report on that and kind of break down what's happening? Um, Those explainer videos, they take a lot more time to produce than the interviews do. And as a one-man show, um, which I sort of was before, um, it was just hard to get the bandwidth to do it. Um, Now that I'm structuring the business exactly the way that I want to, Uh, I'm finding resources that might be able to help me do that a lot more scalably than I was able to before. Um, So anyways, folks, you should hopefully see a lot more of this type of stuff. Also there's some more platforms like Substack where the business that I ran before wealthy on, I actually was doing a lot of writing for about a decade and it's kind of fun to have the ability to go back to writing when I've got the bandwidth to do that uh, because some topics um, can be explained. I, I think more effectively in pros with charts. And you do that a lot with your articles that you're writing about every single topic that I ask you about Lance, right? So I'm finding there's some interesting complementarity between these different platforms where they can kind of play off of each other and enhance the total offering for everybody. So more to come on this, but again, the simple uh, answer is everything you liked is going to stay. We're hopefully going to add some more stuff on top of it that you're going to like as well.
1: So speaking of Substack, though, uh, which is great, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Substack, but are you going are you thinking about starting to charge people to watch Thoughtful Money?
0: No, um, uh, with a little asterisk next to it, um, which is, no, I mean, the mission of Thoughtful Money is to uh, educate and empower regular investors to fund their life goals, right? Like, that's what we're all about. With a mission like that, you have to provide your content free to the world, right? So- 90 98% of the content i create is going to be freely available to everybody. Um that being said, the, what the Substack platform does allow for is the delivery of some, you know, additional premium content to folks in certain situations and right now uh what's been great about Substack it's been a way for me to provide people important updates on where the thoughtful money movement is going going forward, you know, what to when we're going to launch, what new features were we're thinking of and get getting input from people, giving people an opportunity to talk during the week, uh, community-wise. Um, but also, you know, Substack lets you provide premium content. And so many people have been upgrading to the premium service just to say, Adam, I love what you're doing. Um, you've given everything away for free. I just want to support you, right? And so they're signing up for the premium service. They were signing up for the premium service in return for nothing. and i don't i don't want to be the kind of guy that just passes a hat and say you know please give me free money so for people who are paying to support me i'm going to work to give them premium content and and there's there's two ways i'm doing it right now um one is you may remember uh when i had the bandwidth to do it i was writing what i called adam's notes after the major interviews on this channel which is hey i'm i'm doing a gazillion of these interviews um uh, what about the one I just did was most notable for me, right? And so I would take the time when I had it to write up my takeaways from from the video, which I thought was useful for people for two reasons. One, it really let them crawl inside my head. You know, what about this interview stood out? But also, I want people to be able to lean back and really listen to the interviews and not worry about having to scramble to take you know a ton of notes. And so with the Adams Notes, it lets people kind of just really be full, you know, fully engaged listeners, knowing that the key points are going to be summarized for them later on. So people who subscribe to the Substack Premium um, service are getting my Adams notes now going forward. Um, Secondly, uh, there will be, um, I'm still figuring out exactly how it's going to manifest, but there will be at least one premium video a month that I'll offer to that audience as well. So this is, again, kind of a give and take, but it's if people are going to be generous enough to to subscribe to support this channel, I want to make sure that they're getting something valuable in exchange for their generosity. But beyond that, you know, that's that ta- that content I'm talking about is a tiny fraction of all the content that we're producing and will produce going forward, which will remain freely available to the world.
1: So let's get to the important question: um, Is the wood background coming back, or stuck <laughs> <laughs> with that green one?
0: <laughs> yeah, a great question. Um, it's very sad that the wood background could not make the transition along with me. Um, and I, I really liked the background. It, it took me a while to find it and I was very happy with it. Um, and I am realizing now how lucky I was to have found it because I've been going through a whole bunch of different background options and really none of them is really um, meeting my standards. What I have here right now, I'd hoped it was gonna be good and it's it's green leather. It's actually a really quality background. Um, I was kind of going for that like banker's desk kind of look, you know, those those great old antique wooden desks with the the green leather, you know, writing tops on them and whatnot. Um, but I've gotten enough feedback from folks and I agree. I, I don't think it 100 percent it hits the mark here. So I'm going back to the well. Um, I, I, I am thankful for this. It was good enough. Uh, to be able to have something to be able to launch this channel and folks have been nicely tolerant of it, but I've had enough conversations with enough design oriented viewers to say, Hey, Adam, there's there's probably a way to raise the bar a little bit higher here. So stay tuned.
1: Right. And uh, of course, I guess the big question is, is what can your viewers do to support you?
0: Ah, Well, that's easy. Um, you know, we kind of already talked about Substack, but, but most importantly, what folks can do is just watch this channel. Um, I, I already told you. all like. missions, Pardon me? Subscribe and like, please. Subscribe and like. Yes, thank you. When you watch, please subscribe and like. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, first and foremost, what we're trying to do is build on the movement here, right? And so my job is to create the highest quality content that I can. So if I am, hopefully you will watch it. But hopefully you'll also give me feedback in terms of how I can improve the quality here so that as we raise the quality, we reach even more people. So please watch and engage with me. Second is recommended. If you know people that might benefit from this uh, this content, family members, friends, relatives, workers, whomever, please share it liberally. And then third, to your point about subscribing, um, two ways you can help us by subscribing. One is if you're watching this channel and you haven't yet clicked the red subscribe button below, and, below please do that now. Um, right now, while we're still early out of the gate, the more subscribers we have, the more the YouTube algorithm will score us more highly, and the more it will share our content with other people. So that's a really easy, totally free way to help us out. Um, second, subscribe to my Substack, And it's actually totally free to subscribe. But as I said, it's a way to for me to keep you better informed of what's going on with the full movement here as we continue to you know, develop more and more content and more and more solutions for folks. And then if you're really feeling generous, um, feel free to upgrade to the premium service there. And like I said, um, hopefully it doesn't feel like just a, an empty hat that I'm asking you to, to throw some money in. Um, there'll be a value exchange there. But if, if you are so motivated, that is super helpful. The folks that have been subscribing to the premium service there have been helping me defray all the startup costs of launching this channel, of which there have been many. Um, so uh, so yeah, so uh, I think that's about it. Unless there are any other questions on the list we haven't touched yet, Lance.
1: No, nope, I think that's it. And um, you know, I'm just I'm glad you're back and I'm glad we're doing this and I'm excited about some of the opportunities that you and I have talked about, you know, offline over the last, you know, few weeks about things that we can do in the future. So,
0: it should be very exciting. It should be. And that's, that that gets to a conversation that I had with Ted Oakley which which will air the week following this video where I was asking him about, you know, kind of you know, what makes a rich life and he 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 works with high net worth clients and Sees a lot of people who've been very successful um, financially, um, and some of them are incredibly successful life-wise, but some of them aren't, right? And so I was trying to dig into like, what makes the difference, right? And one of the things that he said was, he said, I've seen a lot of people who make it big, and then they don't turn around and um, reward or express their gratitude for the folks that helped them get there. Right, and he really he, he identified that as a real character shortcoming that he he, he thinks prevents people from being happy, and um, I the amazing thing about this transition has been the unbelievable amount of support and goodwill that I've gotten from so many different parties. You know, certainly from the viewers, um, from uh, you know key partners, um, from vendor. I mean, just just everybody that's heard has been incredibly, uh, you know enthusiastic about this decision, cheering me on. But at the top of the list, Lance, I got to put you and and the guys from New Harbor and um, uh, the, the folks from Rocklink, the, the financial advisors, um, you guys were just incredibly supportive, um, have, have offered all sorts of different help that you had no need to offer, but you did out of just great generosity and partnership and friendship. And um, I, I chose the word steadfast for you at the beginning of this video. <laughs> Uh, because you have been you have been a steadfast, uh, I don't even want to say partner. I just want to say friend uh, through all this. and and it's true. There is a lot that, uh, that that you and I have already kind of talked about that that we could be doing uh, to add a huge sort of plus to to this movement here. And um, I'm super excited about you know what the future might bring there. But I, I do want to thank you personally and thank you publicly for um, all the support that you've given me and this whole new venture and its birthing here.
1: Well, you're most welcome and always happy
0: to do it. All right. Well, it speaks speaks an awful lot to your character. Um, all right. Well, look, um, in, in wrapping up, folks, uh, normally I make the pitch here that everybody should be working with a professional financial advisor who understands all the issues that we talk about here. You should actually do that. I will definitely be continuing to make that pitch in the future. Um, normally, I drive you to a form you can fill out to be connected uh, with the advisors that Thoughtful Money uh, will endorse. Um, that all is getting put together right now still so that that infrastructure is all being put together so i'm not going to push you to a url this video uh, but i will in the future and i will definitely say um, if you haven't yet talked to lance's firm you should just give those guys a call Um, and wrapping things up here if you can help us out like i said click that subscribe button below hit the like button both of those things are going to help the algo help this channel get to new heights more quickly um, Again, if you haven't uh, already gone and subscribed for free to my Substack, please go do that now. That's just at adam Lance, as usual, I'm going to let you have the last word, buddy.
1: Yeah. And, and look, and, and to your point, you know, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com is our website. Um, we have daily blogs, newsletters. So, I mean, you know, anything you need help with, you'll probably find help on the website. So, again, you know, Adam's point if, if you need some help, we're happy to do it. Uh, there's a forum on the front that you can just ask a question and we answer every question every day. So uh, we'll certainly take care of you. All
0: right. And folks, like I said, we got a lot of great content coming up here Uh, the day after this video airs. We're going to have the one with Fred Hickey Uh, next week. We're going to have Jesse Felder and, uh, uh, oh, and we're going to have the debate between um, uh, Matt Pippenberg and Brent Johnson, which I have finished uh, recording. You're going to love that one, folks. Um, But I mentioned several times in this video, the recent video I just did with David Rosenberg, great discussion, really talks about kind of what's most likely to happen from a macro standpoint next week. Uh, To go watch that one, I'll put it up right here. Um, With that, Lance Buddy, thanks so much for absolutely everything. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.